when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, Jedi, Sith, and Nobodies, to episode 89 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. It's week number two of Star Wars Madness here on the show, and we are excited to get into this very divisive new entry from director Ryan Johnson. I'm Aaron, and here with me is my co-host and Padawan, Patch. Apparently, he has been taken over by the dark side, and I'm a very bad teacher. (laughs) Evening, everyone. Well, buddy... Something else is trembling in the force today, and so before we jump into The Last Jedi, I was wondering if you would do me the honor of letting me go over the recently announced 2017 Seattle Film Critics Society Awards, of which I am a voting member. I don't think I would have been able to prevent you from doing that, so why don't you just go ahead and and indulge us? Oh, goody. (laughs) Well, as many long-term listeners, long-term, long-time listeners will know, uh, I am a member of the Seattle Film Critics Society, and I'm also a, a member of the board of directors. I serve as the communications coordinator, so I spent a couple of hours this morning on Twitter feverishly announcing our awards to the world, and this was a really, really cool experience for me, Patrick. I know you've gotten to be a part of it kind of behind the scenes and mm-hmm. hear the ups and downs of me trying to cram for it's like cramming for a test watching four or five movies in a night so that I've seen enough that I can you know vote accordingly and then crossing my fingers and hoping the the ones that I choose win it's it's a lot different than the Oscars where I'm doing it for fame and glory this is this one I have skin in the game you know like these I want my I want my picks to win man and uh, a couple of them did out of 19 categories. So maybe a couple's not that great, but it's more than none. Hey, it's so, good for our first time. Um, yeah, let's just uh, let's run through some of the award winners, and then um, we can talk. If you have any thoughts on them, why don't you just chime in? I'm gonna I'm gonna list off the nominees. I'm gonna list off what I voted for, and then I'll say what the winner is. And if you have any thoughts, you can give me your thoughts on that. Does that work? That sounds great. All right, so we're going to start with the technical categories, uh, and we're going to begin with Best Visual Effects. Best Visual Effects, we voted for the nominees as well, and those turned out to be Blade Runner 2049, Dunkirk, The Shape of Water, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and War for the Planet of the Apes. I actually voted for Valerian, because I think it is one of the most stunning visual films I'd seen all year. All of these are so good. Uh, Valerian did not win, however. War for the Planet of the Apes won for Best Visual Effects, which I am very happy about. I am too. Uh, I, I have not seen a... Well, of the nominees that you mentioned, I've seen probably three of them. And War would probably have been my top pick. I figured that. I figured that. And it's it, it's tough, because again, like a lot of these categories, they're going to be just they're almost impossible to choose it feels bad it feels like picking children in some of these you know like this is my favorite child today uh because war war apes upset me yesterday or something but yeah there's best visual effects went to uh war for the planet of the apes uh, next we had pr- best production design our nominees for that were blade runner 2049 dunkirk murder on the orient express 
Phantom Thread, and The Shape of Water. Murder on the Orient Express got some consideration from me, even though I didn't love the film. I liked it. Uh, but vi- like visually and from a production standpoint, I thought it, that was definitely its strongest aspect and was something that stuck out. But I had to go with my heart, and I went with uh, Blade Runner 2049 on that one. Yeah, I, and... went with your, I went with your heart, too. Well, good, because that is what won. So yes. we uh, yes. we got one for Blade Runner at least, and that made me very, 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 very happy. After that, we had Best Original Score. Our nominees were Blade Runner 2049. You'll see it show up a lot on this list. It led our uh, nominations with, I think, nine. Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, War for the Planet of the Apes, and Wonderstruck. I voted for Blade Runner 2049, the Hans Zimmer score. There's just something about it that has stuck with me. I, you can't go wrong with any of these, in my opinion. They're all amazing work. Uh, ultimately, we awarded Phantom Thread, Johnny Greenwood. And uh, it is a wonderful score, especially in context of the film. It's It's tough because that's one where the majority of, of listeners so far have not seen that movie, <laughs> if not all of them because it's not out yet. <laughs> and uh, But when you do, pay attention to the score because obviously it was worth us giving an award to. Next, we had Best Film Editing. For that, we nominated Baby Driver, Blade Runner 2049 again, Dunkirk, Get Out, and Lady Bird. I voted for Dunkirk. I probably would have been okay if Baby Driver got this award, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna give my vote to Baby Driver based on those nominations. Nice. Well, I, there were some that did vote for Baby Driver, but Dunkirk emerged victorious, and I can see why. Yes, I, I think that it was a two horse race between yeah. those two for sure. I would think so. For best costume design, we had Beauty and the Beast, Blade Runner twenty forty nine again. <laughs> Pretty much every technical quality. In fact, maybe every single technical quality it was nominated in. Darkest Hour. One of my favorites of the year. Phantom Thread, again, and The Shape of Water. Uh, I voted for Phantom Thread. I think that the costumes in this are just stunning. I mean, it's all about a lavish dressmaker. So it's kind of pre-built to be in this category for best costume design. Yeah. You, you, you would you think. in this category, you're probably doing uh, you, something wrong. You're right. Your movie didn't, didn't do anything right or something. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> we did award this to Phantom Thread. So Phantom Thread was our winner for best costume design. So keep an eye on that when you eventually see it as well. Last technical co- uh, category, we had best cinematography. This was Roger Deakins for Blade Runner 2049. Elisha Christian for Columbus. Hoyt von Hoytima for Dunkirk. Alex, Alex, I almost said Alexis. Alexis Zabe uh, for the Florida Project. And Dan Lauston for The Shape of Water. If you know anything about me, there's no question for me on this award. I voted for Roger Deakins and Blade Runner 2049. Uh, the man that I hope wins his first Oscar finally this year. Uh, yeah. Guessing you would have said the same? I would have, and um, if for no other reason than to give us an extension of what we were introduced to in the original Blade Runner. There was a, a sense of um, of real like consistency between these two worlds that was the same world, just... It was a nice, uh, it, 2049 was, it was, it was a logical leap visually from, uh, from the original. And I thought he did a fantastic job with it. 
Yes, I do too. And we did as a group. And we we gave the Best Cinematography Award to Roger Deakins for Blade Runner 2049. So hopefully, Academy, if you're listening, you just follow along with Seattle and do the same. All right. So the next two categories are unique to the Seattle Film Critics Society. Uh, we have these two awards, and these are two of our favorite awards to to give. The first, and this one gets a lot of publicity and a lot of good feedback. This is our Villain of the Year Award. Okay, now this is this is fun, and I don't know of any other group that does this one. We had before I give you the nominees. Some of the nominees that were not included, but that were actually voted for, that had had votes. ISIS in City of Ghosts, the documentary. Donald Trump in An Inconvenient Sequel. <laughs> Poisonous Mushrooms in multiple films, which I can't mention. Uh, <laughs> the, there was just there was a, a plethora of hilarious, right, like write-in votes there, and interesting ideas. And some of them, I mean, we almost we aren't opposed to that. Last year, this award. Uh, went to Black Philip the Goat, who is actually Satan in the movie The Witch. So, you know, this is a this is that's a lot to live up to. Or maybe he was. Oh no, he was the runner up, I believe. Okay, so this year the nominees for Villain of the Year: Dennis and various multiple personalities in Split, portrayed by James McAvoy; Martin in The Killing of a Sacred Deer, portrayed by Barry Keegan, also in Dunkirk. Pennywise from It, portrayed oh. by Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> Philip Kraus in Detroit, portrayed by Will Poulter. If you've seen Detroit, that's the police officer that basically runs the show and, and does all of the, the beating and abuse. He's he's terrible. I mean, I, ugh, he easily could have won this. And Richard Strickland in The Shape of Water, portrayed by Michael Shannon, also another incredibly awful human being. My vote actually went to Michael Shannon in The Shape of Water. I don't really like the film much, but his role in this I thought was incredible. And I mean, we're both big fans of him, so mm-hmm. I know if you do ever see the movie, you will probably agree wholeheartedly with me that he nails this performance. But what would you have gone with out of what you've seen? Um, well, yeah, it's a limited category. I haven't seen Detroit yet, but I want to. Uh, I'm not in a I need to be in the right headspace to watch that. And um, I'm not going to see The Shape of Water. So of the two that I've seen, um, I would have gone with James McAvoy because I actually saw the whole movie and I didn't have to cover my eyes during a lot of it. So uh, just the idea of Pennywise was not enough to put him over the top for me. So my vote would have gone to James McAvoy for this don't you think almost though, if you're afraid to watch him, that that should be a vote in the favor of? Yeah, but if I'm going to do that, I'm going to write in for Tim Curry for for destroying my childhood by being Pennywise <laughs> in the '90s. So the potential of Pennywise is probably what what gotcha. what he does. In all seriousness, what he does in the movie is nothing like what Agreed. what I think uh, Dennis and the Horde do. Just in the, the way that McAvoy just owns that role is, but just phenomenal to me. Totally, totally on board. And I, I would have voted for McAvoy. He was my close second. I mean, and I, I kind of knew he was going to get a ton of votes. So, you know, I let that one ride. But he, we ended up awarding it to James McAvoy uh, for Dennis and the Horde and Split. And right, I'm really, so. really happy with that award for Villain of the Year. 
Okay, the other unique award is, uh, well, not necessarily unique to us. Some other societies do this as well, but it's Best Youth Performance. And we consider this as any actor that is under the age of 18 at the start of filming. The nominees were Daphne Keene from Logan, mm. Sophia Lillis from It, Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project, Millicent Simmons from Wonderstruck, and Jacob Tremblay from Wonder. Now, this was a no-brainer for me, and I would have probably lost my cool if the winner was not the one that I picked. Um, I chose Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project, one of the best movies of the year, and she is phenomenal. I mean, absolutely stellar, knockout kind of good, like star-making performance, reminiscent of Jacob Tremblay in Room a couple of years ago where everybody was announced to the world or he was announced to the world. It's just that kind of performance. And that is who we ended up awarding it to. So I think when you finally see the Florida project, you will absolutely agree unless you've seen it. Have you watched it yet? Not yet. It'll be, it'll, it'll be, it's on the list along with two or three others that have made at least nominations for this that will be done by the end of the year so that I'll have a wider palette uh, for our end of the year special. Yay. I like that. Plus I want to see the movie. So I mean, it's, you know, oh, it's yeah. win, win, win for me. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, <laughs> you're not just watching this for, for work. This one is, is yeah. worth seeing. Okay. Best ensemble cast. Uh, we nominated call me by your name. Get out. Ladybird, The post and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And this was another very strong category um, my vote went to the post when audiences finally get a chance to see that as well. I think they are going to understandably be very proud of me for voting for the post <laughs> because it is just awesome from top to bottom. We're not talking about just Hanks and Streep here. All of the supporting characters are pretty much perfect in this film. They fill their roles just the way that they should. The, uh, Ward went to get out and, this is one that I, I kind of don't agree with. For me, Get Out is the number five out of five on this on this on this list of nominations uh, for best ensemble cast. I I could have gone with any of the other ones well before Get Out. I understand the appeal of Get Out to a lot of the the folks in our group, but it just wasn't the acting wasn't the thing that stood out to me about that film. All righty. Best Actress in a Supporting Role. So here we go. We're moving on to the big ones now. This got really tough, Patrick. Really, really tough. Um, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, we nominated Tiffany Haddish of Girls Trip, Holly Hunter, The Big Sick, Allison Janney from I, Tanya, Leslie Manville from Phantom Thread, and Laurie Metcalf from Lady Bird. Now, a couple of actresses that I did not include on my ballot, and in hindsight, I'm kind of wishing I had, were Anna de Armas of Blade Runner 2049. One of my friends mentioned her, and I wish that I had thought about her before putting in my nominations, because I think she would have been a perfect uh, person to be on this list for Best Supporting Actress. And another was Michelle Pfeiffer in Mother, which I know you haven't seen, but she is just, just amazing. Um older 
Michelle Pfeiffer, something like it's like a renaissance, like a Pfeiffer renaissance of sorts. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Okay. Um, so I'm guessing you don't have a dog in this fight either yet. I don't. I would just pick Alice and Jenny because I love her. And, okay. You know, well, you couldn't fire. go wrong. And once you see that performance, you'll. I mean, she is. She's not the Alice and Jenny you know. I'll tell you that. I, I wouldn't. Say, I wouldn't think so. I mean, she's just like no. 180. <laughs> um, Doesn't surprise. But I, I voted for Holly Hunter in the Big Sick. I think that her her role, or I don't know, I think she's faded in the mind of the public because the Big Sick came out in the early summer. Mm-hmm. And now we're in award season and all these other films have just released other than Girls Trip uh, very recently. And it, it bums me out because at the beginning of the summer, Holly Hunter had all of this best actress buzz. Like everybody was talking about how she was going to be a lock. And then it seems like a lot of people forgot about her. But for me... I still think she's amazing, and I had to go with her. But Laurie Metcalf, I can get behind. Uh, Andy's mom, that's the only other thing I've ever seen her in that I can remember. Uh, so Scream 2, in case you didn't know, that's Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> so she's back here, and she's a better mom, uh, at least. She's not killing people. So best actor in a supporting role. For this, we nominated Willem Dafoe of The Florida Project, Barry Keegan, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Sam Rockwell, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Michael Shannon, The Shape of Water, and Sir Patrick Stewart, Logan. I was very happy to see him get on this list. Uh, He's not going to be my pick, but if something's going to be nominated from the movie Logan, for me, this is the right thing. Yeah, it's difficult to nominate a best anything that's not technical for a comic book movie. But I feel like Logan stands out not only being Hugh Jackman's farewell performance of the character, but the seriousness that the creators took with the story as well as the characters within that. And so I feel like, you know, he, you know, Sir Patrick Stewart needs to be uh, among those, even if he's not uh, the, 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 you know, default winner or whatever like that. Well, we'll see what happens come Oscar time, but we we actually, we absolutely loved him in our group. Um, my vote went to Willem Dafoe, though, for the Florida Project, and if I had another, like, I'm going to be angry if this person doesn't win, this is on that short list. He blew me away this year. In fact, all of the performances from the Florida Project blew me away. Uh, best Supporting Actress, Bria Venade, she is the mom in the Florida Project. She was discovered off of YouTube, Patrick, by Sean Baker, the director this wow. is not an actress that is, you know, he, he found this crazy woman on YouTube. Um, and I say crazy in a good way, not like, I don't mean like she was nuts. And but she was very, she had a very unique personality and it was what he was looking for. And he brought her in and she kills it in that movie. I really wish we'd have nominated her. But every performance in this movie is stellar. Willem Dafoe is the emotional center and he holds it all together. And he is just, I mean, for a guy that everything he does is wonderful. This stands out. And for me, that means he has to be the winner. And so I am very happy that we did choose Willem Dafoe of the Florida Project to be our best actor in a supporting role. All right. Best actress in the leading role. For this one, we nominated Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water. She's mute for the entire movie and uh, she does a phenomenal job. So it's hard not to nominate her, in my opinion. Frances McDormand, Three Billboards Outside Emming, Missouri. Unbelievable performance. Margot Robbie as I, Tanya, or as Tanya Harding in I, Tanya. 
I guess. <laughs> um, it's that much of a transformation. Like it feels like Tanya Harding. Uh, she just just phenomenal as well. Sorsha Ronan from Ladybird and Meryl Streep, The Post. In this category, I would have dropped Streep out, but that's because she was my fifth of five. If she was, you know, if, if any category where Meryl Streep is your number five or you would have left her off your list and she's still amazing, that tells you this is a strong category. This one was very, very hard. I, none of these ladies deserve to lose at all. My favorite didn't even get nominated, and that's Vicky Creeps. I, I believe her name is how you say her last name. Um, unknown to me until The Phantom Thread, but she plays opposite Daniel Day-Lewis in that movie, and I feel like she basically owns the screen every time that she is on it, including in every single scene that she is in with him. And if you can do that to Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> like that's 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 my definition of like that's where I said she should have been my winner. Unfortunately, couldn't get her in the noms. I'm hoping maybe she'll have better luck come Oscar time. I voted for Sorsha Ronan of Lady Bird. I love the actors and I love the performance and I love the film. And uh, we agreed collectively and Sorsha Ronan was our best actress for the group. Yeah, I was 0 for 5 in in that category. I have not seen any of those, but hope to, again, rectify that in the next couple of weeks. Yes, I'm excited when you do because I think you're going to like Lady Bird a lot. Well, if Lady Bird ever gets close to me, I don't, I don't have a theater that's going to be playing it so much. So hopefully, we'll see what we'll we'll see what happens. Hopefully, Arkansas gets their stuff together. Okay, um, best actor in a leading role, we had Daniel Day Lewis, Phantom Thread, yeah. James Franco for The Disaster Artist. A lot of love from our group. <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya, Get Out. Gary Oldman. Darkest Hour, and Robert Pattinson, Good Time. This is another fantastically competitive group. Um, why are you sticking your tongue out right now? Well, I was hoping that Andy Serkis would have made the cut, okay. at least in the nomination. Me category. too, and we are not alone. There were others that were with us. We just didn't have enough. Truth be told, so I would not have nominated James Franco this award actually came down to a tiebreaker vote between James Franco and Daniel Day-Lewis, not both of which I honestly wouldn't have put on the list. Or if I did, Day-Lewis would have been like my number five out of five. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm spoiled because he is incredible in Phantom Thread, but it's just Daniel Day-Lewis being incredible again. And I, it's it's that same problem that Hanks and Streep run into yeah. where you just their excellence is there. I yeah. have been screaming Gary Oldman's praise from the rooftops. He is amazing in Darkest Hour. I love the movie. It's one of my favorites of the year. I am telling everybody, please go see it. And he got the early buzz for the Oscar, and then all of the critics have have ignored him. We also didn't nominate Timothy Chalamet of Call Me By Your Name. This is another one where I don't like the movie, but I cannot ignore the brilliance of that performance that he puts in in that movie. And we probably messed up by not having him in this five, to be honest. He's winning a lot of critics group awards and it's, it's understandable because he deserves it. So this is a very tough category. Loved Robert Pattinson being involved. Um, Daniel Kaluuya again from get out. Like I, I don't feel like he's best actor material in this, in this, not, not on par with these other guys. I voted, voted for Gary Oldman 
Like I said, it came down to Daniel Day-Lewis or James Franco. And luckily, in this case, Daniel Day-Lewis did emerge victorious. So this ended up being kind of like our safe pick in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> but whatever. I mean, I, it is what it is. Man, maybe there's a slant towards method acting that gets you a higher uh potential to be nominated for best actor or actress or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting because this is not something normal for our group. You know what I mean? Like this is, I, this is not what we usually go out of bounds and I'm about to say something about that here in a second. So a couple other categories before we hit the biggest ones, best documentary feature. We had city of ghosts, ex libris, the New York public library faces places, LA 92, and step. I saw a lot of good documentaries this year, Patrick, and four out of these five were on my nomination ballot. So I was pretty happy that I nailed almost all of them. The one that's missing for me was called Icarus. It's currently streaming on Netflix and it's well worth a watch. If you have any interest in sports or the doping scandals that have taken place with Russia um, and the Olympics and the IOC, see um, it's about cycling and doping and it's it's fascinating and it is high-paced energetic almost like a thriller so i would check out icarus um i could have gone with almost any of these i think they're all phenomenal documentaries but faces places took the cake for me um this is a documentary from agnes varda and a guy named jr who does photography and they basically just drive around the uh, countrysides of france in this van and in his van, people walk inside of it and they get their picture taken. And his van is like the side of it looks like a Polaroid camera. And this gigantic Polaroid comes out of the side of the van from their picture. And then he paint, he pastes and, and basically glues or he, I don't know what he does, but he transposes the photographs onto like the sides of barns and buildings and things like that. And so, for example, like you may have, they made a farmer. And he has this big red barn and they take his picture and they end up putting a big picture of him on his barn. And it's just, this is the most joyous I have been watching a movie, I think, all year. It is so phenomenal. So I hope people will get the chances to see Faces Places because it just makes you smile and believe in the goodness of people. Well, that disappoints me because none of those documentaries have made it to to my uh, my watch list. Yes, Faces Places is, is close. I've got... Um, I've gotten, a, I'll get a chance to watch it here in a, here in a couple of weeks, but the rest of those documentaries, I'm like, oh, for the guy that likes docs, I'm just way far behind when it comes to those. Well, you can skip Ex Libris. It's three plus hours of <laughs> public library randomness. It's fascinating and it's incredible. It's, it's, there's no narration or anything like that. It's, it's Frederick Weidman mm-hmm. and it's, it's just the way he does things and it's, it's really a unique experience, but it's, you can skip it. LA 92, I hope everybody gets a chance to watch. It's about the riots in 1992 in, obviously, LA uh, that included the Rodney King beating. And this one is pieced together footage and clips, so it's not biased. It's it, Well, I guess everything has an inherent some sort of bias in documentaries, but as much as it cannot be, there's no narration on this one either. It's just a series of clips and stuff, and it's it will rock you if you live through this like we did. All right, moving on. Uh, Did I say, oh, we gave the award to Faces Places, so yay, we got that one right. Best foreign language film, Blade of the Immortal, BPM, Beats Per Minute, France, Raw, and Thelma. 
Not a fan of these movies. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say right up there. Not that I don't like foreign films. Uh, I wanted your name in this category to be be in there. Didn't get it in. Um, I liked Blade of the Mortal. It was fine. It was cool. Samurai fantasy type flick. My vote went to France. Uh, it's streaming on Amazon Prime, I believe. And it's really, 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 really good. Black and white French film. Uh, French slash German. We ended up awarding the best foreign film to Raw, which was probably the biggest surprise of our awards. Uh, this is a movie about lesbian cannibalism. I really don't know what else to call it, but that's what it's about. And it's on Netflix. And if that's your thing, go check it out. It's not my thing. Okay, moving on. Best animated picture. Okay, this is the one where I'm sad. Okay, we had Your Name, Loving Vincent. Just stop. Go. Why are you even saying anything else? I, I'm with you, man. I'm with okay. you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I know. So Your Name, Loving Vincent, uh, the Lego Batman movie, Coco, and The Breadwinner. I think it's okay. I voted for your name. If you listen to our recent mini sode last week that was released, you obviously know that I was going to vote for your name. I've been championing this movie. I passed my copy of this movie around to various critics in our group, trying as hard as I could to get them to see this film before we voted. I really believe a lack of having it viewed worked against it. And that sucks because with anime films, they don't stream anywhere almost ever. And so these these critics couldn't just pop in a DVD. They didn't get it. They didn't get a screener for it. So for them to see it, they would have had to spend their own money and spend twenty bucks to to buy it. And that's that's mm-hmm. that stinks, you know. And so I did what I could. It actually came in the runner up, <laughs> and <sighs> I don't know how close it was. I'm guessing the gap was pretty big. I don't know, but that just crushed my soul because I was so close to getting it, man. And I, I did, I ran a crazy hard campaign. I probably annoyed, <laughs> probably annoyed the crap out of them trying to get them to vote for this movie, but I sold my soul and I do it again for this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it did not win. What we did give the best animated picture to was Coco, which is fine. I mean, it's not the best animated film, at all by my standards of any, actually I would have voted for all four of these over Coco. It's not because I don't like Coco. It's not because I don't think Coco has an importance and a great message and great history to it. I just thought it was fine. Uh, and the rest of these do something very unique and special. So seek them out, please. Yeah. Coco is definitely the safe bet because of the things you just mentioned that it has a solid message and it's got wide appeal. And, um, you know, I would have, been the same way i mean your name lego batman and probably coco of the movies that i've seen that would have been my order i figured we would i knew that we would sync up on that one all right uh three big ones left so screenplay for us we combine adapted and original screenplay you want to know how hard that is patrick that's hard okay <laughs> for a guy who loves screen this is one of my favorite categories in the oscars the two screenplay categories you're telling me i gotta put them together what what no not okay the nominees were uh, Emily Gordon and Kamal Nanjiani for The Big Sick, Scott Neustadter and Michael Weber for Disaster Artist, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, and Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Interesting thing here I want to point out is that three of these films were writer directors and I, I don't know how common that is i don't think it's that common to be honest 
Well, the episode we're recording tonight was by a writer director. That's a good point. So it's I don't, and that's even more rare for uh, for blockbusters. Yeah, I mean it's not. I I don't. I'm with you. I don't know how rare. I think it's more common that we would expect, but I think it's less common than. It's. I think it's still pretty uncommon, but it's probably more so than we think. Yeah, for sure, man. I I think I just it it just stuck out to me this year for some reason. Um, My vote was for the Big Sick again. I think this was a forgotten film, and I thought that. In this category, it really shined for me. I, I just adore its screenplay a lot. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is the posh pick. Uh, you know, it's 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 biting and and witty and like just scathing commentary and angry. And I guess if you like that, it's really good. But I didn't care for the way it went in the end. Um, ultimately, I voted for Lady Bird. No, what did I, I vote for a big sick? Like I just said, we awarded this to Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird. It's a good pick. It's a fine pick. It's not my pick. I I think it's a it's a good script. It really is, but it's not the best coming of age script that I've I've seen even in in recent years. Um, it's not anything that is mind blowingly special. I think as a love letter to Sacramento, which is what Lady Bird is. It is close to darn near perfect, so for that, it does earn those high marks. And I mean, whatever, I'm not going to complain about this one, but it, it didn't didn't get me excited either. Okay, best director. Our nominees: Sean Baker for The Florida Project, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out. And Denis Villeneuve for Blade Runner 2049. Patrick? Yes, sir. What would you pick? Well, two out of five of those have been watched by me. So of those two, uh, Blade Runner 2049 and Dunkirk, you're making a face. Which one I do you did not know that you hadn't seen Get Out. It's going to be... Yeah, I'll watch it before the end of the year, probably. Holy cow. Yes, dude. I just... <laughs> I mean, we're talking the movie that was released in like February. I, th- there's a lot of movies that have been released really early. The Big Sick is on my list too. How many times have you watched Sing Street this year? Hmm? Just hmm? twice. Ah, it's two more times than Get Out. Last okay. month. <laughs> Last <laughs> <Anyway>. month. <laughs> so if, if it was down yeah. to Christopher Nolan or Denis Villeneuve, who would you go with? Well, my heart would tell me, would tell me, actually, I don't know. Because both of those left me in a weird place when I, when I left the theater, they, they didn't make me, I didn't feel the same way about each one, but I felt like, what did I just watch? And did I love it or not? And so I think for me, I would have given it to Villeneuve. That would have been my pick. And it would have been very tough because I'm naturally going to gravitate towards Nolan, but there was something about Dunkirk that I didn't quite gravitate towards uh, to make it like, yes, and the more that I thought about 2049, the more that I wanted to explore that world. Like if I were to revisit a movie of those two, it would have been 2049. Awesome. Great reasoning. And that's what you just said is why Dunkirk can't be in the trophy room. So thanks for that. Appreciate that. <laughs> it's an honest opinion. <laughs> it's a wrong one, but it's, it is honest. Um, there's, enough, okay. there's enough Nolan in there already. We don't need to make it a Nolan trophy room. All right. Well, that's true. That is, <laughs> that's actually true. Okay. Um, I voted for Nolan. 
and which is actually probably shocking to a lot of people because Blade Runner 2049 is my jam. Um, absolutely in contention for my number one film of the year. I loved Denis Villeneuve as well. This was this was tough, man. And you know what? And honestly, Sean Baker in the Florida Project, he's right there with the other the other two for me. So I would I would have had no problem at all if he won this category. Uh, but I did go for Nolan, and I hope that Nolan does finally get that Oscar nomination and win. I think that he deserves it. And for me, I thought what he did with Dunkirk was so beyond staggeringly unique for a war film that it just, it absolutely has to be recognized in this manner. So Mm -hmm. that's who I voted for. And that's who we awarded the best director award to was Christopher. So I am super proud of that. I can hang my hat on that since some of these other big ones I missed out and didn't get my picks in. Um, (laughs) That makes me happy. All right, Patrick, the last one. And I, I know you probably haven't seen, but like two of these, maybe three. Is Sing Street on this list? <laughs> no, not. Patrick, it's not. But our nominees for Best Picture of 2017, Blade Runner 2049, The Disaster Artist, Dunkirk, The Florida Project, Get Out, Lady Bird, Logan, Phantom Thread, The Post, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's a very good list. It's a list that I was not too upset by, to be honest with you. Uh, there's some movies that I didn't really care for, and they didn't show up on this list. I was shocked. I was really, really shocked. Uh, the fact that Blade Runner got on here really made me happy. And it came down to what I've heard is that our second place, second, third, and fourth place, this was an insanely tight race. So... The winner didn't dominate the nomination or the votes. Um, there was a lot of spread out voting here. And I think that's the theme of our whole awards this year is they were incredibly diverse. We nominated a ton of films and we awarded a ton of different films as well. And that just speaks to the strength of this year, in my opinion. It's been a really, really great year in film, both in the blockbuster and indie world. Um, Non-superhero comic book blockbuster world um even though logan is on this list if you want to count it so all right my vote blade runner 2049 absolutely no question about it our winner was jordan peele's get out which is pretty amazing um i can stand behind that because it is an incredible film and for it to be one that he wrote and directed and put out there so early in the year to now come full circle and be awarded by us as best picture is really something special. I think this film is amazing and we covered it back on one of our mini sodes earlier this year. So feel free to go check that out. Listeners. Uh, we had a guest on Blake Collier joined me for that. And it's a great conversation about this, this movie. So hopefully you guys will check that out if you haven't listened to it yet, but yep. 2017 Seattle film critics society best picture was get out. And that concludes a crazy first award season for me, and I can. Uh, yeah, we didn't have to play you off the stage. That was awesome. Uh, barely, it was getting close. <laughs> but now I can uh, start watching movies that I want to watch instead of movies that I need to watch. So that'll be fun. That'll be fun for a little while. All right. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, it's high time that we get into some Star Wars talk. Star Wars, invariable Star Wars. 
I'm sorry, that was my that was my Bill Murray from Saturday Night Live. I yeah, that was I. Th- please, if anybody actually got that when he was doing it, will you come comment on our Facebook or Twitter and let us know? Yeah, Bill Murray, Saturday Night Live, lounge singer singing Star Wars. It's really fun. This is problematic because I don't watch Saturday Night Live. Well, uh, this was back in the seventies. I definitely wasn't alive. Oh, okay, I was alive then. All right. This is a spoiler podcast. We're going to spoil the heck out of Star Wars The Last Jedi, and it will be able to be spoiled. So don't listen to us unless you have seen the movie. This is your warning, your last warning. It's over. Moving on. Okay. (laughs) Patrick, let's get started. Quick fire. First reaction to your viewing experience. You have not told me anything. You said this will be an interesting conversation or something, and then you told me you wouldn't say anything else until tonight. So I don't know where you're going to go. Well, let me just say this first, that I had, I don't know what my expectations were going into it, but coming out, I just kind of sat there for a minute and then I went, wow. I think that was probably the best Star Wars movie that I've seen in, well, in 30 years. I mean, this to me felt so refreshing and I didn't know if I was supposed to like that because it was different or if I didn't know if I was supposed to love it because it was different. But the more I think about this, the more I, as I, as I went home at one thirty in the morning, Oh my gosh, that was too late of a movie or time to see a movie, um, which is a different conversation. Uh, but I, I walked away just feeling very much like, man, that was incredibly satisfying. It didn't, everything about what I experienced in it with the exception of, a few missteps here and there, which every movie has. Well, I say every movie. The five-star movies obviously don't that that you and I have shared in the trophy room. This is a movie that felt like a logical extension of The Force Awakens and at the same time felt like something completely refreshing from anything that we've ever gotten from a Star Wars feature. What I wanted from Rogue One, I got in this one. Like everything in terms of what I wanted to happen. Um, Emphasis on character development original stories, sacrifice, stakes, all these different things. And I got everything about it and more. And so this is one that I immediately wanted to go back in and just kind of experience it all over again. Um, just not that late at night. Not at two o'clock, right? You no, didn't want to just no, walk right back in. <laughs> I wanted to go to bed after that. And then I wanted to wake up and then go back to the theater. That is a wild, yeah, I would never have gone... I get, gosh, was, your movie didn't start till eleven. It's okay. Real quick story: the no, my movie started at nine fifty-five. Two months ago, my wife and I purchased the the tickets for Star Wars, and we had a sitter all lined up. My parents were willing to take our son, and they said, "Hey, we'll even let him spend the night." So I was like, "That's great." Had our tickets uh, ready for that Saturday. I had to go into work to get some hours taken in or whatever, and I was going to confirm my uh, the times on the email. Uh, and just to see, you know, where were our seats and, and whatnot. And this is, I guess, about two o'clock my time. And I looked at the the email and it said, your showtime starts at 1 p.m. And I said, whoa, okay, that was an hour ago. Oh my gosh. So I'm scrambling to find tickets. <laughs> so the only time that my wife and I could find two tickets together reserved that weren't underneath the screen <laughs> or her taking advantage of handicap seating, which we couldn't do anyway because they were all filled up, was at 9.55 that night. So we had a nice extended date night. 
and caffeinated ourselves up and, and did everything we could to stay awake. And so at, 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 you know, 10 20 or after all the trailers went through the, uh, the big yellow star Wars logo appeared on the screen and we settled in for two and a half hours of, of goodness. And, <laughs> and so, so yes, uh, it definitely tried our, our stamina and it was worth it for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that it was worth it because if you went through all of that and it wasn't, that would have been, I mean, just, it would have really been crushing for you. I think, <laughs> um, that's wild. That is, oh, I don't envy that, but glad you liked it. Okay. My first reaction, I saw it the first time at about 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 30 AM on a work day. This is the same time frame that I saw Blade Runner 2049 and had a less than stellar experience the first time I saw it. Star Wars was better. I enjoyed the film very much and I came out of it thinking, man, that was pretty good. But for some reason, all of the negativity around it, and there was a lot coming out, really just lodged in my brain. And I started nitpicking it. And over the course of the next three or four or five days, I felt myself growing less and less fond of it and, and finding more and more problematic. Then I took my son to see it on a Saturday morning and watched it a second time. And I came out of it. And basically all of those nitpicks, almost all of those nitpicks completely fell away for me. They didn't bother me at all. And I adore the movie. I think it is absolutely one of my favorite Star Wars films too. I put it right up there with the the big three for me, which is Force Awakens, New Hope, and, and um, that other Empire. One. Yeah, that one with Yoda. Um, with so Yoda. <laughs> I I liked it a lot. A lot, a lot. And I want to see it again. Um, the more that I've, I've thought about it since that second viewing, the better it's gotten in my mind. And I know we're going to dive into the specific reasons why here. But it was, gosh, it was just, you said it. It's refreshing. It was so unique, so different than what I thought it was going to be. And I this is a movie where I think that people need to go see it twice, especially if you had a negative or lukewarm reaction no pun intended but if you did go see it twice and you still came out feeling the same way then okay then then maybe that's just what it is for you and that's that's too bad or whatever that is what it is but i've known a lot of people who felt a lot better about it after their second viewing because of those expectations because what happens when we go in having thought about it for two years and tried to figure out what's going to happen. Patrick Luke says it in the trailer for this movie, and he says it obviously in the film. This is not going to go the way you think. Mm -hmm. And that is what The Last Jedi does. It constantly averts our expectations from what we consider to be traditional Star Wars, and it just doesn't do the things that we thought were going to happen, mm -hmm. as a, like you said, as a follow on to the story of the force awakens. Right. And, and the thing that I was having a conversation with a coworker of mine, who's a big fan of the big blockbusters. And you're we talking about this along with Thor Ragnarok. And I said, this is, this is probably the clearest way that I can describe my, my feeling of this when compared to my reaction to Thor Ragnarok, both films allowed their characters to deviate significantly from what we expected of them 
in in certain ways, but at the same time, one held true to the character's quality and the overall like spirit of the characters and and the and the history of that character based on the franchise and based on the history of the of the films. The other one didn't. And I'm not knocking Thor Ragnarok. I'm, I mean, what I'm what I'm this gave me a better way to understand. This is what I think for me works in terms of being able to take risks theatrically, take risks with characters that are beloved, take risks with a a, a franchise that has history and at the same time maintain the spirit of all of those things. And I think Johnson does a phenomenal job of being able to do that. Um, you know, when he's given the keys to the kingdom and says, here, make your story, he doesn't pull any punches. But at the same time, he also maintains a sense of what I think J.J. Abrams does for the Star Trek franchise. He 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 pay, he keeps the he respects the franchise enough to keep certain things intact, but also says, look, this is a new generation of Jedi. This is a new generation of Star Wars. And we need to make sure that we 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 call attention to that, that we take advantage of that. And I think that The Last Jedi does that in an incredible way. Yeah, I agree. I think it does as well. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because it's not something that can be done all the time. Mm. Because in order to have this transition to be something unique, you have to have that sequence of films that are all the same or mm. kind of play things the same way. Because otherwise you don't ha- – do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like you can't avert yeah. expectations unless you – build to a point that you have those expectations. Exactly. And so it's kind of a a catch 22 because you understand why fans enjoy the way star Wars is and, and what, what was going to happen. And, and and I want to talk about that like later, the big twists there of, of, especially regarding Ray Mm -hmm. and her future. Cause that's one of the the biggest question marks was what's going to happen with Ray. um, What's going to happen with Kylo and Snoke. And then what's going to happen with Luke and who is the last Jedi. But I feel like there were also a lot of meta tendencies that Ryan kind of put into this film. At least in my opinion, there's two different times where almost the same phrase is spoken. One is when Luke is talking to Ray and he says, kill it, let it die. He's talking about the past and become who you were meant to be. And I think Kylo says something very similar to her. And I feel like it's almost Ryan Johnson talking about the franchise. Mm-hmm. You know, he's saying, we're going to take this in a new direction. It's amazing to me. I, I'm, I'm legitimately still shocked that Kathleen Kennedy and Disney and, and Lucasfilm gave him the right to do this. From what I was reading in interviews, he was given full control over where this story went. So when JJ ended it on a cliffhanger, they didn't know what was going to happen. They just said, go make your movie. They didn't tell him what to do, which that's awesome, man. That's awesome. You know, it gives me hope in Disney, frankly, if you're going to like do that, then okay. And I totally could see why the announcement came out shortly before this film that Ryan Johnson is going to get his own star Wars trilogy of characters that we don't necessarily know and stories we don't know to come and tell. And I am super excited for that one. Yeah. And what I think he does is 
he understands that the way that he leaves a story isn't necessarily going to be how Abrams and company pick it back up in episode nine. Like, I think he understands that the risks that he took from the force awakens to the last Jedi, those same risks are going to equally be on the table for episode nine in reference to the last Jedi. And the thing is that makes me okay with that because at the end of this movie, two words come to mind. Anything goes, I mean, like anything is possible at this point, nothing is telegraphed. And that's what makes this movie so powerful and such a probably, again, my, I think my top star Wars movie of the franchise of all eight that have come out because it's the first one that I honestly don't know what's going to happen next because anything could happen. What that is, I have no idea, but it leaves me wanting to know more. Whereas I think The Force Awakens kind of hinted at like, okay, yeah, we're going to find out more about this guy. We're going to find out more about Ray's parents. And we're going to probably wonder if Kyle is going to turn from the dark side to the Force. And These are things that, yes, are explored in some degree. But never have I had a Star Wars film leave me going, what's going to happen next? And it could be that because these are films that came after the original the middle three, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We only know what um, we, we only know maybe from books that have been written within the canon mm-hmm. that I've never read, but those books aren't necessarily source material either. So I don't think that, I think that the appeal of that and the intrigue of that is what really, really made me enjoy the film a lot. Yeah. I think, I think you point that your point there is, is obviously spot on that, we don't have any clue where we're going. They can, they can take it anywhere. And that's not normally the case when we get these franchises and these trilogies or these reoccurring films. It's all about seeing it happen, not, not being surprised about what's going to happen. Um, I think everybody had their expectation and and belief that, you know, Ray's parentage is going to go, it was more about like how it was going to be revealed than it was what was going to be revealed. Everybody kind of assumed she'd be a Skywalker. And even if it wasn't, it was, there weren't many other options. So we really got surprised on this one. Um, now you say, you said that this is your favorite, which is amazing and awesome. So I got to ask what keeps it from being five stars? Cause you did say that there weren't, it wasn't perfect. Are there any like little, what are the little things that kept it from getting that last bit for you? Every once in a while I would be in a moment. And I think the biggest thing for me was honestly the whole codebreaker subplot. Um, as someone who's, you know, trying to get better as a writer, I understand the need to, get a character from point A to point B and to further what was going on. And so for, for guys like, like Finn and Rose, yes, it made sense to, to do that, but it just wasn't appealing to me. Benicio del Toro's character was just kind of off putting. Nothing about him felt very, um, not even likable. And, but it wasn't because he was a bad character. It's just because his character just wasn't appealing. Um, so that wasn't really my favorite. In fact, again, and, and I fully admit that there could be a little bit of this biased in there, but I did kind of fall asleep a little bit there because it was late. And, but it, again, it, I, 
even missing a few minutes of the movie, I knew what was going on. Oh, they they left the casino planet and now they're heading back to the to the convoy. Uh, the other thing was every once in a while there were some jokes that dropped that felt very modern, like haha, that's a Marvel joke. You'd hear that in a modern day Marvel movie. And it um I think it was like for instance, there was one where Luke said, You're not from anywhere, and he goes, I'm from Jakku, and he goes yeah, that's yeah, that's nowhere. That's and basically I, I, nowhere. I, I, I kind of chuckled at that, but it doesn't seem like something that Luke would say. I'd never expect Luke Skywalker to make jokes like that. Um, it, obviously, these things were not enough to take me out of the film, but they just they were just kind of kind of pew little misfires when it came to dialogue or even um, even just this little subplot. The biggest thing though, for me was this whole Leia in space and the force. And I just said, that's dumb. You know, I actually thought because, you know, when she passed away, how are they going to handle that? I actually thought that that was going to be what happened. And then here's this hand and here's this dead looking woman coming back. And I'm like, this has gone from like sincere to now creepy. And so yep. I, I just, I, those are the, probably the three biggest things that stood out to me. Um, okay. But that last one more than anything. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And those are things that I pointed out as well when I came out of the film, uh, reviewing wise, I, I did not care for the force save it all. So I'll stick with that one first. That is absolutely the one that I hated the most. I thought it was awful and just, it was ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. I mean, and not only the idea of it being ridiculous, but like the CGI and the way that it was filmed it was just terrible. It was bad. Yeah. I would have been okay if she died that way. That would have been traumatic, especially because of the emotional context of Ben being the one that was about to pull the trigger and then mm-hmm. not doing it. And someone else, the other two fighters swooping in and kill and do essentially doing that. And him just having you watch, knowing what was happening, and then having to go on and live with the fact that like, he couldn't do it. He was, he'd have to wrestle with the fact that he was not the one to do it. I just think that that would have been more compelling as well. And But I, but I also understand not killing her off. I just think if you're not going to kill her off, don't go through that sequence. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you're going to fake – if you're going to have her almost die, just do it in a way that's – not stupid. I mean, I, I hate, I, I, I hate to like say it that bluntly and not be all critical and, and, and verbose about it, but it, it felt stupid. I didn't like it. It was dumb. It was like, this is not what would happen. She's frozen out in space and all of a sudden like, okay, we get it. She knows how to use the force. We knew that. Um, or we assumed that. So yeah, I, I am not a fan at all of that whole sequence. When it came to the dialogue, I'm with you there as well. There were a couple of those jokes that just didn't land. Here's the interesting part about it is that I laughed at all of them. While I was rolling my eyes, I laughed. And that bothers me because that means that I am conditioned to like that kind of jokes. But I also, at the same time, was very aware of the fact that I did not enjoy them in my Star Wars story and they did not feel placed correctly. The one that stuck out to me I actually read an interview uh, from Ryan Johnson about this. It was the the scene at the beginning with General Hux and Poe calling him. And he says, yeah. you know, hold the phone for General Hugs." And he said that he was holding his breath 
when that scene played for the very first screening because he didn't know how audiences were going to react. And when they laughed, he kind of was able to let, let go a little. He said the point of it, again, I under I understand where his intention was, and I feel it's admirable. His intention was to get the audience to a place where they were willing to laugh so that when they went through some of this emotional stuff later, that they could they could not be so uptight and so serious that they weren't able to to have that little bit of fun with Star Wars that we usually are. But yeah, it was just too modern. It was it was just ridiculous. Like that's not even close to something you would say in this world. Right. It's just, just not. And it's bad. It's very bad. It, it should have been should have been cut. If you were if you were to give that kind of dialogue to any character, Finn would probably be the closest that could probably say some of those lines. Um maybe not even in context, but just those that the the nature of that humor, the modern take on that on that humor. Finn's character, I think, was initially set up to be able to deliver those kinds of lines. And I think he did. Like, for instance, the going back to The Force Awakens, his conversation with BB-8 and trying to get the uh, secret base from the uh, uh, from the resistance. He's like, you know, tell me, you know, tell me, tell me, tell me. you know, his his demeanor, uh, it it <laughs> it invites that kind of humor. I don't see that from Luke. I don't see that from Hux. I don't see that from from Poe. None of those characters, I mean, you could say earned, but I don't see any of those characters having that kind of history of that kind of humor. And I'm like you, I laughed at some of that stuff as I rolled my eyes as well. And by the time Luke said his thing, like even the conversation with him, I tell you, one joke that did land, I'll say this, is the whole force when when she's like... With the leaf? yeah, can you feel? Oh, that was that, hilarious. Because because that fit for him, you know. He's when you understand who he is as a character, how he's kind of gone bonkers. You know, he's getting milk from those weird things and and whatnot, and he's been living on an island for however long. You you can see some of that eccentricness come out. For some reason, that joke landed for me, but the one about where raised from didn't and it may have been because i hadn't gotten used to his eccentricness until later but yeah for the most part i think the modern jokes were were a little um uneven for me yeah same but there but there weren't a ton of them so that was good it's not like it's a barrage where you have to get used to it um the casino so my thoughts on the casino here's the thing I didn't like it at all the first time through the film. The second time through the film, I still think that there's parts that could be trimmed. This movie is a little too long. But I understand its purpose in really looking at more of this idea about the war machine. There's this this line that gets brought up by Benicio Del Del Toro's character about how this, these traders were selling arms to the bad guys, and then he's like, "Oh, look, and the good guys too." And there's this idea that the empire in the galaxy is in the position it's in right now because of this. And Rose has experienced some of this this stuff as well. With you know, she grew up and she she was very she almost she's almost like an activist is what it comes across as, and so. I appreciated the idea of that 
and the desire of Rose to have a political agenda that that was like, hey, let's take down the the high rolling money making people who are getting high on the hog off of the death and destruction and misery of the innocent people around the galaxy. So I got that, but it still doesn't make it enjoyable as a movie or an experience and as a sequence. And I think that it just went on too long for the most part. That was probably for me, the, the thing that would probably made it negative for me was the length of it. Yeah, because I think, I think go ahead. I'm just saying, I think if you could have trimmed it down and I don't care for Benicio del Toro's character either. And I think as much as I love the idea of Finn and Rose getting together and I like where they end up, I'll say that the getting there portion, the whole, the whole getting on to the, the ship idea to bring it down and, and the way that that plays out, it just doesn't pay off because they end up in this battle with Captain Phasma, who is like the most throwaway character in the entire two movies. Like, there's no reason for her to be there. She's a zero, zero point. Mm-hmm. And it's that's the part that like you could have cut all of that out. You know what I mean? Like, find another way for a reason for Rose and, and Finn to be at the casino or wherever it is. Make your political statement about good and bad and the moral gray area that's going on with regards to money making around the galaxy and the war machine and then get them back to the fleet. Right. Right. So yeah, I am with you that it still doesn't, I still don't love it. And it's what holds it back from greatness for me the mm-hmm. most. Yeah. The, you mentioned, you mentioned Phasma. I, I definitely have to agree with that because watching the teaser or watching the full trailer or whatever it was we saw a few months ago, somebody was like, I don't want to see the the big reveal. And I'm like, what reveal? What was that? And the guy sitting next to me was like, Oh, it was this. And it showed Phasma returning. And I was like, Oh, did she die? Yeah. Because she was a very forgettable character in the first one. And so when she, I guess when she died, I didn't really think anything of it because she didn't really have much to say or do in the first one. She was there and then she wasn't. And I agree. I think it's not, it's not worth for me and I guess for you as well, spending screen time to solve that or finish off that storyline that really didn't have much going for it anyway. Exactly. And she's, and she's a, a known actress too. I mean, she plays Brienne of Tarth on game of Thrones. Millions of people worldwide who watch the show know who she is. If you're going to f- cast her in that role, like, let us see more of her than one eye in two movies. You know what I mean? Like, it's just just a waste. And it, maybe, in hindsight, I'm actually going to praise this deci- decision. I think this is where I land with a lot of things about Last Jedi. Even the things I don't like, like I mentioned earlier, I see the purpose of them. Getting rid of her now is probably the way to go. Because now it's one less one less person to muddle the plot lines in the future. Just get her out, Right. And that's what this movie was. This movie was just cutting people out left and right. Like it doesn't, Leia's not coming back. Right. So Leia's gone unless we CGI her in, which will destroy me. So I'm hoping we don't do that. But, you know, we've, we've cut out characters a lot in this film and we're getting it down to some other, this core group of new ones um, that are interesting and, and have places to go. The other thing that I don't like would be, okay that I didn't like as much walking out the first time and I I'm better on is 
how Snoke's storyline is dealt with. Did you have a problem with it? Um, no. And because I didn't like Snoke in the first one either. He's, he's a character that just didn't appeal to me. I think that's a waste of, uh, of a good actor personally, because <laughs> I mean, I don't see Andy Serkis in that, in, in that, uh, that's a, that's a personal opinion. Uh, from a, from a movie watching standpoint, his character doesn't appeal to me and he came across like the emperor and knowing what I know about the movie and about what I think its intent is, I think his demise was perfect because it's again, going back to mentioning what you said about things aren't going to go the way you think. And we're, we're not dealing with the same plot line like empire. There's not one guy who is controlling our baddie who he's going to eventually have to overcome. I think that was a well-played moment where, where we get Kylo just offing this dude because the, the, because that tells me that the movie was the friend, the the story was never going to be about him overcoming the superior thumb of Snoke. It was really, it's now about him. And this is what I think we have stock in now is this character development of Kylo. And we don't have this, this tethered, um, Supreme leader Snoke um, having to weigh him down. So for me, I thought it was great. I'm, I'm for the same reason that I'm glad Phasma's gone because it's one less character that we have to deal with in terms of uh, and antagonists and and battles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I actually really enjoy it now personally because I think that Snoke being gone gives Kylo the chance to be the strongest in the galaxy. Yep, like he he can he can run this his mother now like i mean he tries he tells ray like hey let's let's do this together let's be the new order we'll we'll run the galaxy um and i think there are some noble intentions there it's not all based on evil and that's that's the beauty of kylo ren is that he is he's got this duality to him i mean snoke calls it out he says he uses it to to mold ray and kylo's minds together like he he preys on that weakness that goodness that kylo still has mm-hmm. i loved i like andy circus in it first of all i get a kick out of the fact that he sounds a lot like Gollum uh in this <laughs> role as well um, but i was glad we got to see snoke and see that he was a little bit larger than life and just you know i don't know i like the scenes with him in him but i really really loved the killing scene i it was so intense my jaw dropped my, I think I squealed. I may have, I may have, you know, peed a little. I don't remember. Like it was, it was so unexpected and unbelievable because you just don't think that's going to happen. Right. right. Like, and when you, when you watch the second time and you really are focusing on, you're watching snow and he, you can see it. It's so beautifully shot. He's overconfident. He's got ego. He's talking about it as Kylo's doing this. He's like, I see it in your mind. He's turning the lightsaber right. And he's imagine he's Kylo's genius because he's doing all of those things with his right hand with Ray in front of him, but he's doing the same thing to the other lightsaber. And that's why Snoke gets fooled. And just the look on his face when he's like, did that just happen? Like that was one of the most intense sequences of any Star Wars movie I've ever seen. I love that. Well, this was the thing that that I wanted. I wanted to see 
advancement of a character. And what we got, I think, was Kylo on steroids in terms of his character development. Because in that moment, what we see is not someone who's struggling with overcoming his own issues, although he has those, but we don't see him under the umbrella of this other this other being. We we see that in Empire with Darth Vader and and uh, and Palpatine, and so we get a hint of that. What I love the th- is the fact that Kylo basically says, "Look, <laughs> I am I'm much better than you think I am," and he's saying that to Snoke, but he's also saying that to us as an audience. He's like, "Look, what more you think meta, of, yeah. What you think about me is not what is true because I really am." more powerful. You know, this has been preached about by other people around me and by myself. And what I, what I dig is that the, the adolescent uh, brooding, overly uh, sensitive, out of control, little boy that I saw in the force awakens grew up rapidly in those five or 10 minutes in terms of, I was going from like, Oh, you're an evil, evil dude to, Oh my gosh, I'm not going to mess with you. You you have you can outsmart people. You're not just being mean and overbearing and trying to use your your ability to use the force. Uh, no, you're really smart and you're 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 legitimately um, a, a villain. Yeah, absolutely. But yet he still has that hint of immaturity and that rage that can take him over, which yeah. is beautiful because that's what the dark side is supposed to be. Exactly. You're supposed to be out of control. And so that scene, another one of the most intense scenes in the films that I love is that scene where he's like, fire everything you've got, fire it all. And he's like, just like, just do everything, yeah. you know? And, and it's, it's, it's amazing because you can see it on his face so well. He's, he's such a fantastic actor. I mean, Adam Driver just blows me away more every time I see him. Um, so I really, really like that about his character. I also find it very intriguing that the Kylo and the whole reason we're in this position in the galaxy with Kylo or Ben, however you want to want to think of him is due to miscommunication and misunderstanding. So Patrick, last week I went to a class called emotional intelligence and it was all about learning how to understand emotions and not, not let them control our interactions with others so that we can be better communicators in the workplace and in our personal lives one of the exercises that we did was learning how to separate what they call stories versus facts. And so a story is what I tell myself about what you say. So Patrick, you could say, I beat on the drum and you're just standing there next to a drum. Well, the story that I tell myself is that you beat on the drum because you're talking about beating on the drum, but I didn't see you beat on the drum. So it's not a fact. It's a, it's what I believe to be mm-hmm. true. And then I be, these things begin to compound. I start to to work my way through. And, and if you ever do this exercise, it's fascinating and it's a little bit depressing because you learn just how much of what our conversations are based on our minds and what we are interpreting mm-hmm. and assuming about the other person. And so that came to my mind when I was watching this movie because that's what kind of happens here with Luke and Kylo when they're at the temple. Luke is holding a lightsaber over him and Ben understandably reacts. He wakes up and he tells himself a story about what Luke is doing mm-hmm. and he acts on that story. There's never a moment of 
Let's sit down and talk about facts and get everything out. Let's ask me the question. I'll give you the answer and then you'll know for sure. There's none of that. He reacts and boom, now we have a Sith, right? Now we have a dark side of the force and and a good side of the force. Now there's a split. It's tragic to me. And I, I just love the way that Johnson came up with this because I will always go back to that moment as there was this, there was a second there where none of this had to happen. If you just want to talk, talk it out, you know? Right. And we become the victims of that as an audience because we start telling the story based on the particular truth of the person telling it, because we get both, we get both perceptions we get Kylo's vantage point. We get Luke's vantage point. And the, and the truth is what you said, the facts happen. The same things happen in both stories. Luke comes in with a lightsaber and Ben wakes up. Those are the facts of what happened. But from each person, the perception creates two different vantage points. One creates a world of bitterness. One creates a world of unforgiveness and what we have is what you know. You and I have talked about, we mentioned it on the 13 Reasons Why episode about how your truth is not my truth and how truth becomes subjective at this point. The power of perception overtakes what the reality of the situation is. And when Johnson does that in that moment, it helps get set the stage for that final conflict between Kylo and Luke. It's what gives weight to that. It could have easily just as it could have easily just as been a great lightsaber battle, which I think there were some criticisms about. Why didn't we get that great lightsaber battle? But what it turned out to be was a psychological battle. And it made Luke's comment, I'm sorry, that much more sincere because in that moment we're going, we're sorry too. Because we're sorry that we perceived you in a way that you may not have fully gone to the dark side, that there was probably still good in you. And that had what you mentioned, had we been able to flesh that out as an audience or as Luke or whoever, things might've gone a lot different. And it also speaks to consequences of that. And just like in real life, we can have that perception. And it, this class really taught me to stop thinking of perception as reality to, to kind of debunk that and not live in that world because of, because of this. Kylo's perception led them down this path. And now Luke says, you know, Kylo's like, are you here to, you're here to save me. And Luke's like, nope, 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 I'm not sorry. Like you, it's time now. Like you've made your choice. It may have been based on a story that you told yourself, but you've made your choice and you've taken actions based on that. And now the consequences exist. They're real too. And they have to happen. So yeah, the psychological aspect of this film and specifically that storyline blew my mind was not expecting it i mean it was so much more than you you think you're gonna get when you come into this star wars movie it was it was awesome and i don't know why i wasn't expecting i having seen ryan johnson's other films i should have i should have known but i just didn't trust disney to let him do that and i i mean i said before i'm so so proud of them and so glad that they gave him the reins to do that okay let's talk through a few other characters here poe I love Poe's storyline in this movie. I, he was already one of my favorite new characters, probably my favorite new character. Um, I, I loved his, his flyboy character and, and, and the way that he is. Here, we get an actual great story arc for him. 
comes in and it's like Top Gun, man. He is Maverick. That opening sequence is awesome. I think everything about it is awesome. I don't, I don't care. Stop nitpicking fans, people out there in the internet, on the world, in the world. Stop complaining that bombs don't drop in space. Okay. This is Star Wars. All right. We, we have laser swords that we're fighting with and that's okay, <laughs> but we're going to complain that bombs don't drop in space. Stop it. Just stop it. Now, everything about that opening sequence is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And it, it sets Poe up so perfectly for this dual. There's a lot of duality. And it's it's character arcs. It's moving from one place to another. It's maturation. It's change. And Poe starts off, he thinks he's being heroic. He thinks that all of this sacrificing others is worth it. He's going against what his commanders have told him is best. He's not trusting in anyone but himself. And yet he ends up becoming someone who is followed. I love that moment at the end of the movie when they're about to go follow the crystal critters and Poe's like figures it out. And he's like, follow me. And everybody stops and doesn't follow him and turns and looks at Leia. And she looks around her like, like, what are you looking at me for? Follow him. And like, that's he's, he's earned it. He's earned the respect. He's earned the title. He's earned their leadership, the leadership you know, role that he has. And I, so I just love, 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 seeing his character grow um, in that regard. And it really did. It reminded me of Maverick. I mean, he even has a Maverick moment in his X-Wing when he like bumps to the side and hits his hits his uh, stick and comes whipping around the TIE Fighters. Yeah. Did you think so the good. same thing? I was like, he was hit like, the brakes and they're going to fly right by. Him. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but the one other thing I'll say about Poe, and then I'll, I'll see what you thought. I'm assuming you're on the same page, but there's this, there's another great moment in this film and, and I I gotta credit Johnson as a writer, man. Haldo, the, the Admiral, at one point says to him, We are the spark that will ignite the fire and light the republic. And then Poe, at the end of the movie, completely different scenario, after she's already sacrificed herself and he's gone through these changes, he uses that line to others. And he says, We are the spark that will ignite the fire and burn the rebellion down. Two ways to say the same thing, but she's focused on, like, he uses her line, but it has his flair to it, right? Like, when he tells Leia, permission to jump in an X-Wing and blow stuff up? <laughs> like, like yeah. he's not going to change who he is, but he's going to do it under control now instead of recklessly. And so Haldo is saying, you know, we're, we're going to light this and we're going to light the Republic. That's her character. That's what she is as a leader. That's not Poe. But Poe now uses her line, burn the rebellion, and he says burn the rebellion down because that's who he is, but he's doing it controlled. And I just yeah. I thought it was a beautiful twist on that speech and really kind of just signified his growth and the respect that he ended up having for her to me. Yeah. The moment that I liked with him the most is his aha moment. And that is just... I guess it's the whole sequence of when he's got this, the subplot, uh, the casino subplot mission going on underneath uh, Haldo's nose and everything looks like it's about to come together. Like they're about to, they're about to uh, shut down the, the, I forget what the thing is. The, they're about to deactivate the chip that's tracking the, 
tracking them through through light speed or whatever. And you know, Del Toro's character basically turns on him, and he goes, "They're not going to make it." And then all heck breaks loose. And what we get is from that moment until he gets the reveal from Leia of what how how actually doing, where she is um, sacrificing the convoy so that or the cruiser so that the convoy can get to the base. That revelation that he gets, that aha moment where he says, wow, she really is a smart leader. I think he gleans from that and he says, he doesn't forget who he is. He's always going to be Poe Dameron, uh, or in my case, Damien with hair, uh, or Nathan with hair. Because every time I look at him, I think of, I just, I think of his character from, anyway. But he, he, he never loses who he is as Poe Dameron. And that's good because as a character, you don't want to lose who you are. But he understands what it means to be a leader and that you don't have to have all the answers for everybody. You don't have to let everybody know what you're doing. And you don't always have to be uh, – everybody doesn't have to be completely in the know. So he looks at that moment with with Dern's, uh, uh, Laura Dern's character, I think, and I think she's phenomenal in this. I, I love the way she just has this presence about her. Ditto. Um, so seeing him grow from that to the moment where you're talking about in the, uh, in the base where Leia says, you know, don't look at me, look at him. That is, I think the, the culmination of his character growth, but it really, to me is, is highlighted in that moment where he says, they're not going to make it. Cause that's the moment of humility. That's the moment of real, I failed, I failed and people are dead or they're going to die. Right. You know, whereas with the bombers, he never did have, I don't think he had any kind of remorse for how many, how many bombers died. They still got, they still got the ship, but as Leia said, at what cost? So it was kind of a pyrrhic victory for her, but he was like, nope, I got the bad guys. You know, you compare that to the end of the film where he's like leading people out and they're trusting him. Man, that's, that's a huge amount of growth, and, but I think and, it was pivotal. And when he's taking the speeders toward the, the battering ram cannon, mm-hmm. and, and he's like, no, we can't make it. It's time to pull off. Right. And he, he intentionally makes the opposite of the decision. So, yeah, everything about his arc in this film is phenomenal to me. I love it. I lo- and I also like that you brought up Laura Dern because one thing that another criticism – actually seen a criticism that there are too many women in charge in this movie and those people can just go away. I saw that same criticism and I love the comment that I saw shortly thereafter was the rebellion's not that big. So, you know, you're probably going to have an equal amount of men and women in, in charge. You don't have this overabundance of people. Ridiculous, ridiculous comment. Every female in this movie is awesome. Rose is awesome. She plays a fantastic role. Laura Dern as the as Admiral Haldo is awesome. Obviously, Leia is awesome, and yes, they are leaders. I I felt like it was great because I got to see a very nurturing wisdom side of the female persona mm-hmm. um, that I personally believe is innate to creation of females. Anyway, um, according to the Bible, is what it tells me. Uh, and so I think that that's shown through, to be honest, you know, like they're the wise ones making the smart decisions. The men are shown to be a little more reckless and wild and, and, you know, warmongering. 
Mm-hmm. And and both sides don't feel heavy handed because I know that there are movies out there that want to amplify the male leader or the female power or whatever. And I look at this movie and I feel like Johnson did a fantastic job with giving every character and specifically the female characters purpose that they didn't feel stereotypical. They felt like you mentioned they were their character traits from being female were being amplified being became their strengths that nurturing quality and it didn't feel like they were being patronizing no it did and in the end they all come to the middle exactly because right? the men grow they don't stay like it's not like oh these are dumb men in the in the rebellion that we're just going to mm-hmm. be feminist and whatever it's not like that everybody comes to meet in the middle um, and that's what it takes if you're going to be a successful rebellion and, and get through this and you only have like 10 people left in the entire rebellion. So yeah, I mean, it's going to take that. So I, I just love the way that that was shown. I also really like, we talked about this in the force awakens episode last week, some how, uh, I felt like the, the, the relationships here play as friendships, even when others can see hints of like potential romance or, um, desire between different characters. That was a big question going into this one. What are they going to do with that? Are they going to turn it into romances? And I think right off the bat, they gave us that answer with Finn when they opened up his arc and he met Rose and this plays out like a fantastic friendship. It, it just like him and Ray, we, we learned that him and Ray are absolutely a hundred percent friendship. Like that's how he sees that relationship. When he wakes up, where's Ray, but it's all, it's all a, a platonic thing. Ultimately, with Rose, who knows if it is or isn't? Now it's a question for the next movie because I honestly don't know. But I think it was so pure and innocent the way it happened and the way that when she kissed him after saving him, it's not even done in a way that's like sexualized or, oh, these they're going to be a couple now. It was just a joyful moment of like, I'm so glad you're alive. And she kisses him and then she passes out. So I really like how that was handled. Yeah. I, she was a surprising character that, uh, that I ended up really enjoying not only because she was new, but because of the way in which she, (laughs) I, I love the relationships that she has with Finn because it goes from being an adoration and a sense of hero worship to immediately like, you're escaping. Okay. I'm going to stun you. And then they go on this mission, which I think is probably no hesitation the, at no. all. She's like, yeah. Oh wait, that? Just, yeah. <laughs> but then over the course of the movie, you see their, you see their relationship as, as friends or whatever, their relationship in general, just develop into trust and into understanding one another. And without doing a lot, you know, it wasn't like they had to have a deep, rooted dramatic moment to really uh, solidify their, their relationship. But what I thought was there was a fantastic line that she says to him just after he crashes into, or just after she crashes into him when he's trying to sacrifice himself for the sake of the, of the rebellion with the, uh, I don't remember if it's the death, the death star. What was that thing called? The death, the death, the mini death star. No, it's the battering ram cannon. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> like he called it Death Star Tech, I guess is what it was. It's Death Star Tech, yeah. Yeah. Mini mini Death Star Tech. There it is. Okay. So it's the moment when 
actually felt like he was going to die. Again, we don't know what's going to happen. So I was, I was kind of on the edge of my seat going, is Finn really, are they going to kill, is he going to get killed off? And then she crashes into him and I kind of felt a little cheat. I was like, oh, really? Yeah, this is a Battlestar Galactica moment. You are going to kill somebody, but they're going to come back. And then she says this when he tries to revive her and she goes, I saved you. And that's how we'll win. Saving those we love, not fighting those we hate. That dichotomy said so much about how their hearts had changed as characters because she's always been like this, always fighting the the political stuff and wanting to be, you know, on the winning side. And here in that moment, I think when she's talking to him, both of them are realizing that it's really about other people and, and being able to make sure that the people you're fighting for are the ones that matter, not what you're fighting against. And that's such a big message in this movie, because I think that's what's going to, what I hope is going to lead into episode nine. It's what gives weight to what the rebellion is. The rebellion is not fighting against something. They're now fighting for something else. And I tend to forget that because that's what the rebellion's always been fighting against the empire, fighting against the, the Sith, fighting against the, the new order. Instead of saying, what are we fighting for? We're fighting to preserve our humanity. We're fighting to preserve who we are as people. And, and it's in that moment that I, I was so glad that she said that because I was in that same you know moment with them of going, yeah, you're right. We don't need to be reactive. We need to be proactive. And sometimes that means running away and finding higher ground so that we can, um, so we can live to fight another day, which sounds kind of cliche, but it's very true. Yeah. No, I mean, it absolutely is true. And especially in this situation, I, it was, that was the line that I remembered most out of the entire film when I walked out of it, um, it was the most powerful single sentence to me or idea from the movie. I really, really liked it a lot. And it, it gave so much more purpose to all of the death in this film, because there is so much sacrifice mm-hmm. and so many, so many lo- losses of life that, those we always talk about it. You and I, we like stakes and these things. They've got to matter if you're going to have superpowered beings or, or these supremely teched out space battles and things like that. There, there has to be a humanity to it, where it actually has, you know, the ability to to harm others. And in this one, we see that in spades. Yeah, I agree. So, visuals. Any visuals or, or anything stick out to you that we haven't covered yet? Man, I just want to call back to that opening sequence. All the battles in general were just fantastic in their own unique ways. Just getting us right into the world of Star Wars. Every episode, I think, in some way starts with a battle. It's Something's going on that's exciting, which I think is, I, I mean, it's just, it's typical of any, you know, you've got your, you've got your crawl and then the fade down, what's going on. And we we have what you mentioned. We have that opening Top Gun sequence of the the of, of Poe just doing his thing, and we're 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 just right back in it. And I thought it was fantastic. I was smiling from ear to ear. I also thought, um, with the lack of lightsaber battles, the the final sequence with Kylo and Luke was probably one of my favorite because it felt very much like a 
a dance. You know, they weren't, there wasn't a lot of fighting, obviously with, you know, Luke being, <laughs> being a mirage. And it, I don't know if you, you picked up on that. I did not. I'm a naive movie watcher when it comes to like noticing stuff like that. I didn't even realize that he was a mirage until after the fact. Until oh, the reveal. we weren't supposed to. I mean, I didn't either. I thought, I thought this dude just used the force to avoid like a bazillion lasers fired at him. And I felt as a viewer the same way that Kylo must have felt, which is like, that's insane. Like, that can't happen. I'm going to go down there and deal with it myself. So, no, I, I was fully bought in. I thought he was real. And when Kylo went to slice him, I thought it was over. Yeah. Because, you, I mean, again, you, it was a callback to Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's same. And, you, gosh, I love what Johnson does here because he uses – this is where I think he uses intertextuality perfectly. Me too. He gets you thinking about what's going to happen. And he says, nope. Nope. Sorry. You thought it was, but nope, not so much. And along with that, I think the other scene, the big, I think the big explosive lightsaber battle between Kylo uh, with Rin and all the, I don't know what you call them, ninja troopers or whatever they were. Kylo and Rey against, yeah, I don't know. Those stormtroopers had awesome weapons, though. That's that's exactly what I was going to say is the, the, the weaponry of all those guys, the nunchucks and the, I mean, I, I felt like I was looking at Ninja Turtles, you know, with big, like, lightsaber type weapon things and totally unnecessary for them all to have different weapon types, but like, didn't care. But totally awesome. awesome. <laughs> totally awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know? So f- for my money, this was definitely on par with, uh, with some of the other choreographed fight sequences in the, uh, in the previous star Wars films. Yeah, me too, man. I, I love the light bat light battles, lightsaber battling in this one as well. And then there's that one scene again, this gets nitpicked online a lot. I've already noticed is where Haldo sends the ship in light speed right through the square. Oh my and God. I don't awful. care. I mean, I, again, don't, don't come at me. This is not science fiction. Star Wars is science fantasy folks. It's not science fiction. If this was Star Trek and they were trying to actually follow rules of physics in the universe, then I'd be upset that the ship did that because that's ridiculous. And if the ship could do that, then why wouldn't you just take a TIE fighter and like light speed it into the Death Star a long time ago, right? Yeah. Let me but just say that. Yeah. Cares. Let, me, let me just say this. Every blast that you hear in space, you wouldn't hear is, that. Right. Is not, and it wouldn't you wouldn't yeah, exactly. So 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 let's let's just harken back to nineteen seventy seven from the very beginning. We hear blasting in space. So we've already thrown out that whole it can't do that. No, it can. Which in is more way. which yeah, which is more reason to say the Leia force thing should not have happened because that was trying to get us into a whole sci-fi like oh wait she was of course she couldn't die because there's actually apparently oxygen in space <laughs> anyway well yeah but i but i love that scene and i love the it's way great. it's filmed as well just the 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 screen you know we go we go quiet all of a sudden when we've had all this music and background noise and we just it's oh it's i i just wish it's a complete shock so um that one was awesome for me too all right, so anything we've missed character-wise or anything like that? No? You don't think so? No. All right, well, let's move on, and let's before we hit our connecting point, which is if you can't figure out yet what that's going to be, listeners, then you haven't been paying enough attention because we've avoided one thing like the plague. Um, but before that, I want to talk a bit about expectations for the next film because those – okay, before we do this, I'm going to bring up – 
the quote that I found online. This was tweeted out. Uh, I think I saw it this morning. Someone said, I think it's very hard to enjoy a movie if you've spent two years theorizing and inventing your own movie. And that stuck with me. Not because I do it, and it ruins my movie experiences per se, because I actually feel like I'm probably pretty good at this and I don't let it get out of control. But Facebook groups that we're a part of, this is very noticeable. The majority of conversations, when not forced onto other types of film, revolve around blockbuster movies and these franchises. And the reason people gravitate toward talking about them so much is they like to think about where they're going, what's coming up next for these characters. It's one of of the biggest things people talk about. This, This idea got me really thinking, like, maybe that is causing a lot of these problems with letdown because people are building a movie in their head, and then when they don't get it, they're not judging that our one of our listeners gabriel green of uh formerly the underrated podcast he has said this before that you've got to judge it by its own merit by what the director wanted it to be and was giving you and not by what you wanted to see and i think that that has come into play with the star wars the last jedi in a big way what about you yeah i would agree with that i think that there you can never avoid expectations because any person that is interested in the continuation of a story or is interested in a particular character of a particular franchise is always going to bring their own personal biases and expectations to that there are always going to be things if if and when the flash movie comes out I'm going to have my own expectations. I had my own expectations when I saw Ezra Miller being cast as Barry Allen. And it was based off of my experience with Grant Gustin as our TV flash. But what I try to, what I try to do is as much as I can avoid social media, but obviously that's not terribly possible because we run a podcast that lives in the world of social media. But I think it's very true that, as much as I, I'll use this as an example, as much as I didn't care for Thor Ragnarok, I completely respect and value what its director did with that, with that film. I didn't care for it, but I can see why it was widely appealed. And when a, when a, when a studio gives you that kind of freedom, just like Disney did with, with Ryan Johnson, you, you get what you pay for. And at the very least, as an audience, we have to respect that because we're not in the director's chair. Look, I'm I'm all for being critical of things and wanting to say, hey, I would do it this way or I would do it that way. But at the end of the day, man, I respect the heck out of these directors that put themselves in a position where they're like, I'm going to make my movie and I'm going to be confident in it. Zack Snyder is one of the guys that I've grown to respect a lot as a creator because he knows what he wants to make. And when he's given the freedom to do that, he does it. Maybe he doesn't do it successfully. Maybe other creators and directors for my money don't do it as well as I'd like them to do, but I'm never, I don't feel, I don't ever feel right about putting my own invention or my own adaption of a story on them and say, you didn't create what was in my head. Therefore it's a bad movie. So I'm, I've become less and less inclined to have, 
intentional expectations about movies that I'm looking forward to. And I help mitigate that by not watching as many trailers. Uh, in fact, the, 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 the show we watched Saturday night was the, actually the first time I watched the infinity war trailer, believe it or not. Oh my God. I actually it's hadn't so seen it. good on the big screen though. It is. No, it, it's, <laughs> it's really good. I mean, that's when we saw it, we saw it in 3d, you know, RPX or whatever it was. And I was excited about it, but I'm not going to go revisit it and go break down the, right. The different pieces because one, I don't have that kind of time. And two, I want to experience the movie when it comes out. I don't want to try to guess at what's going to happen. I, I used to be that guy and I'm fine with other people. I mean, if that's what makes your, your boat float or whatever, go for it. But I just, I if find it's more- what makes you enjoy movies more than right. do it. If right. you for- find yourself more often than not being frustrated and angry because your expectations aren't met and your theorizing didn't get played out the way you want, try doing it the other way. I mean, really take, take six months of movie watching or take a year and just commit to like barely watching trailers or only watching them once and then forgetting about them and like not participating in theorizing discussions and see, see how it changes your opinions of the next films you watch. But like, but like you said, if you do that and you enjoy it and it enhances your movie going experience more often than not, then go for it. But there is definitely something to be said about it causing issues. And I, I wanted to bring that up before we hit this question of what do we think is going to happen? Do we want to even talk about it? Cause you I kind of don't. Okay. I honestly well, don't. I don't want to know. I don't want to, I, I want to just sit here and love what happened and see what comes up. Now I've got lots of questions and I got lots of curiosities about right. how JJ is going to come take the reins back from Ryan because the tone of these two movies, albeit both of them fantastic the force awakens and the last Jedi. I'm so thankful. We've got this new direction for the franchise. They're both wonderful, mm-hmm. but they're so different. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I don't either. I mean, there's always the possibility, the, the way that Johnson has said they gave me creative freedom and I took it this direction, but it could go another direction at the hands of JJ Abrams. So that scares me a little bit because I want it to go into a, a Ryan Johnson Direction. direction i want him to keep i almost I, I would love for him to just kind of say hey jj I'll, I'll just take this if you want me to i mean i can i really I, would too I'm, I'm honestly hoping that that's what happens that jj says you know what i want to let you finish this out um, or the very least that they collaborate on it or something because it, you know you got to have his input it, it, it would crush me man if we revert back and we become traditional answers to the questions and all right. of a sudden somebody is a Skywalker and it was just a, just a, you know, misunderstanding. Kylo didn't know he was blocked and all this crap. So like, like I don't yeah, want so, that to happen. Well, so that's, that's a great segue because I'd like to kind of, kind of ooch in. No, let's not ooch. Let's just get right into it. What does this ooch mean? I don't is know. Words? Ooch, ooch, whatever. I know it's, what scooch is. Well, it's a derivative of it. Maybe only without the sc- Whatever. <laughs> so we're going to talk about our connecting point. Connecting point being that one moment. And I think you and I both agree that hands down, the moment that Kylo confronts Ray after they've just completely decimated the the ninja troopers or whatever we're calling them. Whatever. Yeah. No, let's go with that. I like ninja troopers. <laughs> the ninja troopers. In that sequence of events, we as an audience, we're just gut punched, right? Uh, as much as Ray is because he says... Your parents were nobodies, junk traders who traded you for drinking money. Oh, 
I'm hearing that and I'm like, what? No, 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 no. That's not And then right. he's going to laugh and he's going to be like, haha, just kidding. Right? No. Like, we, that's what I expected. No. And he's like, straight faced. I've seen your future. I know what it is. I know about your parents. This is who they are. And in that moment, I'm thinking, how could you do that to us, Ryan? Well, I scoured the internet to get that answer. I didn't scour it. I was actually really happy after the movie was over and be like, I'm kind of glad I got that answer. But I wanted to let the director answer this for me and for us um, that I think sums up exactly what makes me feel the way I do about this movie. And this is, this is from Ryan because uh, we're on a first name basis. Apparently he says the easiest thing for Ray and the audience to hear is, Oh yeah, you're so-and-so's daughter. That would be wish fulfillment and instantly hand her a place in the story on a silver platter. The hardest thing for her is to hear she's not going to get that easy answer. Not only that, but Kylo is going to use the fact that you don't get that answer to try and weaken you. So you have to lean on him. And I'm hearing this and I'm going, yep, that's exactly right. And that quote was part of a Collider article. And I'm going to quote the Collider article. It says, the last Jedi is marked by a refusal to be guided by the sacred lambs of its predecessors. Yoda burns down the sacred text of the Jedi Order. Luke disappears himself, and Kylo usurps Snoke by the end of the movie, allowing the figures of the new class to take hold of the narrative. For Rey to realize that she's not an extension of a legendary resistance fighter or a high-ranking lord of the Empire, but rather a talented fighter who can make her own mythology, is completely in line with that rebellious tone. If that's not meta, I don't know what is. I mean, the whole film is centered around rebellion. It's a film with real stakes, real sacrifices, real consequences. And it doesn't spoon feed us as fans to make us feel good about the franchise. The essence of its heart is what it projects to us as a film, that it's not going to be constrained by what was. but Rather, it's forging this new path of stories, right? This is what the next iteration of this franchise should be, in my opinion. It should be this. No callbacks, no homages. Just good storytelling with these compelling characters in a universe that trusts us as an audience not to have to explain itself. And that's why this one moment, I think, says so much about not only the movie, but about Johnson as a writer and director, and really about me as a fan who's like, I didn't realize this is what I wanted until I got it. That's a fantastic point. Yes, you're right. This is it. This is the only, the only connecting point that it could be. I mean, sure. There's been other emotional moments in this film, but the, the impact of this, it was, it was visceral. Like I felt the impact of those words hitting Ray. I, I, I could not believe my ears, honestly, that this is what was happening. And I was like, wow, we're really going to do this. We're really going to do this. And the first time around, I didn't buy in, man. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you did because it took me the second viewing and thinking about it before that second viewing and then watching it with that context, knowing it was going to happen and picking up on little things like Paige, Rose's sister, when she's in the bomber and she's trying to get the, the bombing uh, button down, I swear to you, she uses the force because She's kicking it, she's kicking it, she's kicking it, and it just won't budge over the edge. She closes her eyes, she grabs her, her necklace, 
and she kicks and it works, right? Like that's to me an example of using the force. It's an everyday person. And then at the end of the movie, I don't know if you caught this during the Cano Bright sequence or was part where you fell asleep, but when they're in there with the kids in the pen and Rose is showing the kids that they're okay, don't call on the guards, like we're the rebellion or the resistance. She shows them the ring. She ends up giving it to the kid. That final scene, I missed it the first time I saw the movie because it is so fast and subtle. But when he goes to pick up the broom, it's the force. It moves to his hand. That's what this movie is telling us, that Ray and all these others, it's not its not on bloodlines anymore. And you know what? When when Luke gives the explanation of the Force, then people complain about this. Oh, we knew what the Force was. No, shut up, people. Just shut up. It needed to be explained because the way that Luke explains it is exactly what makes this believable. Mm-hmm. Because if, it, if the Force is really the the energy that binds the universe and all things together, then why did we ever think that it needed to be an imperial birth type right? Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with anything, right? Nothing. It's just a matter of acknowledging and noticing its presence and choosing to interact with it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's what people can do now. And if people ever, the, man, the implications... <laughs> And possibilities for this world, if anybody can learn to manipulate and use the force, are off the charts. And I'm so excited for that. So this moment, it was crushing a bit because you you felt for Ray. She's worked. She's this is the one thing she's wanted to know her whole life. She's just she needed to know this and to 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 learn this about them. And Kylo even tells her, like you already knew. You knew it. You just didn't want to admit it, but you knew it. Like in your heart, you knew it. And to have that confirmed has to be so like painful for her. And you can feel that. And then the meta side for the story and where it can go. I just, I love it. 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 And I, and I love this movie so much. From a filmmaking standpoint, the other implication that this has is more emphasis on more characters. You know, the, the story of, of the middle three is about Luke, right? Uh, episodes four through six. It's really about Luke, Luke and Luke and, and Darth Vader with Han and Leia and all these other side characters as sort of his part of his hero's quest, right? His entourage. His entourage, right? The the original three, not original, but the first three, the prequels were really about Anakin and his growth with you know all these different side characters. And so we expect, right, when we get to The Force Awakens, oh, this is going to be about Rey and her story. And that moment shatters that because all of a sudden Rey's not fighting Kylo uh, in front of the base. Rey's not leading the rebellion out of the base to the rock formation. Rey lifts the rocks up so they can get out. All of a sudden, not all of a sudden, right there in your face, Everybody matters. Ray matters. Finn matters. Rose matters. Poe matters. All of these characters matter equally. Are they all going to tap into the Force? Potentially. But this is the first time that I've ever seen a Star Wars movie where equal emphasis is placed on more than one character. And on the non-Force users. Exactly. And I think that's brilliant storytelling. I think that's incredible character development. 
But when you use a movie to really re-emphasize that, and when you use a concept like the force is all around us, and it can be tapped into by anybody, yes, the implications are incredible. I mean, imagine how many factions of people could grow out of this and what Ryan Johnson's universe could look like if he said, look, I've got, you know, the force becomes the pivotal thing. So how does this group tap into it? How does this group tap into it? But I love the fact that it levels the playing field in terms of our appreciation for the love of these characters and wanting to see all of them continue to grow. Yeah, me too. I I think it's amazing. And this is the first time I've felt like this. I mean, even I love the force awakens, but it didn't, it didn't revitalize a fandom in me. And I, for someone who has felt just buried in this over abundance of like movies that come out that are like this between this and Blade Runner 2049 this year. And even Dunkirk, like the three blockbusters that just gave me something to think about that did not meet expectations for what traditionally is done for those types of films. They blew me away. Um, it has been an amazing year for that. And for the first time I'm, I'm excited about this. Like going forward, I am genuinely fanboy ish ready for the next star Wars movie. And I will, I cannot wait for two years from now when we get it. So I'm going to go into this next one, the highest of highs. And, uh, hopefully, you know, this, this will continue, but regardless, it doesn't matter because this is the one, this one exists. And I plan on rewatching this one many, many, many more times. Uh, it's good. One thing we didn't touch on Patrick Porgs. Okay. Okay. You don't like porks. They are reminiscent of Ewoks to me, and I'm just you don't like Ewoks. Let's just stop. (laughs) I can I can take them or leave them. Wow! I did you just relate an Ewok to a gremlin? No, I said yuck yuck. I thought you said Magua. No, no, that's that's later this week. Okay. Fine. No, they were, they were, I they, like they, the porgs. No, I did too. No, they were they were fine. They were good. They were lots of fun. I just they didn't stand out to me as much as other people did. Every single time they were on screen, my son turned to me and freaked out. Every single time. <laughs> They're amazing. However, I will say this: one thing that I would love to see, they may be phasing Chewie out, and that's fine. Um. I kind of hope that he becomes a part of the new crew and carries on because he's got, he, he could, but if they are phasing him out with the old, the old gang, it's okay. I did feel a little bit cheated that his grieving for Han Solo, despite having a couple of brief moments where you could kind of note, you know, when he meets, meets up with Luke for the first time and you can see that he's dejected and really, you know, grieving. I, I felt like this is a little bit of a, little bit of a cheap way for him to deal with that pain is to like replace Han Solo essentially with porks because that's kind of, however, the flip side of that, I'm kind of torn because the flip side of that is when people grieve, people get pets and they learn to see the importance of life that is not, or that is all around them. And so they, they put all of their effort and their time into caring for these pets and, and make, bringing them up. And that's kind of also what, what Chewie is doing in this scenario. I could I could buy into that if there weren't tons of them around. I think if you had... No, I'm serious. If you had a singular Porg, like if it was an actual character that became a side character. <laughs> I want that. 
I mean, I want that so bad. But instead, we get a whole like you know whole family of them or a whole just species of porgs, and you know conceptually they're fine. They they're fun. I but I think if I'm going to buy into that that whole grieving idea, I need one to stand out. I need one to you know give them a yeah. If we're going to go to Gremlins, give them a stripe or something like that. You know, give them some significance with Chewie. Um, I do agree that he he is anchored by Han Solo. And so having him without Han is definitely something that feels weird. So I wouldn't mind seeing him exit in a in a respectful way. Like maybe he maybe he goes back to his planet of Wookiees if they still exist or something like that. But um Agreed. But who the, who would fly the Falcon? Well I guess here's Ray the thing, would. Chewie's not the pilot anyway. That's true. Ray That's flies true. the Falcon. Ray flies the Falcon. Oh, and that was one of the best I, I know we need to wrap up, but that was one of the best lines in the whole movie too. When Finn's when the Falcon shows up on the planet on the, the salt planet and Finn goes, oh, they hate that ship. <laughs> like, oh man, that was that was the intertextuality that I liked because that callback was like, yes, they do. Well, and, and and yeah, I know we need to wrap up, but that's one thing I took away was I was saying, if there's any character in this that should probably stay intact, it's the Millennium Falcon. I don't know that I've ever known of a non-human, non-sentient being that has so much value to a franchise as the Millennium Falcon, how iconic it is. I mean, it's got its its own personality. And I think it's, I think the fact that it's stuck around and it's being used appropriately, it's not just being used as like, oh, look, it's the Falcon. No, it's really, it's a legit, it's a legit cool ship. Uh, it's a piece of junk. <laughs> I can make the castle run in less than 12 parsecs. So you're all good anyway. But yeah, I, I love the fact that it's still around. I hope it sticks around for um, movies to come. Well, I hope we stick around for movies to come too. And uh, we're going to start sticking around by covering some next week, Patrick. So why don't you tell us what those are and where people can find you online if they would like to talk to you further? Well, if you want to find me, you can find me at uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S. P-A-T-C-H. As my friend mentioned, we have a lot coming up to finish out the year. We uh, we finished our donor pick uh, voting, and the fans have spoken. The donors have spoken, and we are going to be covering Gremlins, a movie I have not seen in a number of years, so I'll be glad to revisit that. It's the Around Christmas movie. Uh, not necessarily, I guess it's a Christmas movie because it takes place at Christmas, but... Anyway, we've got that coming up. We're also going to be covering Arthur Christmas as part of our Christmas Day episode that will drop uh, on Monday, uh, the 25th. And then we will finish out the year with one of my most anticipated movies of the back half of 2017, The Greatest Showman. Um, I know that uh, Aaron knows that I'm excited about it. And it's, uh, it's, it's coming soon. And the first chance I get to see it, I will. And then we will finish out the year with our end of the year special. We got a chance to do this last year as our, I guess, inaugural. It can't be a first annual because nothing can be a first annual anything. And so we get a chance to do our second annual end of the year, um, not really awards, but 2017 wrap up, what our favorite movies were, what our disappointments, our, uh, our hyped up ones, all that kind of stuff. If you were listening last year, you know what's on the agenda. That same stuff is on the agenda and we're excited to to wrap up 2017 by talking about some of our some of our highlights from the world of cinema. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you? Well, I, I gotta say, I am really excited for the end of the year episode. It's one of the 
best ones we do all year. We had so much fun with it last year. And it's different from our top 10, top 20 lists that we'll publish at some point here soon, too, because we don't just go straight down a list of 10 favorite films in a row and talk about them. We talk about our favorite experiences, our most emotional moments, our the best performances, you know, male and female, what really resonated with us. We talk about our expectations for next year and what we're most excited about. It is if you're going to plan to listen to one episode, like make sure you listen to that one. We're really excited for it and it's it's going to be good and, and entertaining and interesting and yeah, it's a great conversation. If you like to conversate Oh, there I used the word. I love that word. It's not real, but I, I use it anyway. It's real um, to us. If you'd like to conversate with me further, <laughs> you can do so online uh, pretty much anywhere at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find me tweeting from the Feelin Film Twitter account, and I'm very, very active in our amazing Facebook discussion group. We are almost to a new milestone of members. So would love to have everybody out there who has a Facebook account and likes to talk movies, come join and do that with us on a regular basis. You can find it by putting it in the search bar on Facebook or just clicking on the link here in the show notes for this episode uh, or on the website. There's a link at feelingfilm.com as well. So Facebook discussion groups where it's at. Hope everyone enjoyed this and we hope that you all liked Star Wars and that you will go see it multiple times if you haven't if you didn't like it the first time check it out again uh, and see if it'll change your mind if it doesn't then i'm sorry i guess that's all there is to it and you have to die like kylo (laughs) (laughs) and on that note i guess uh stay positive (laughs) and keep feeling film if you can (laughs) 